You know, as we uh, continue our series today, we're going to be uh, looking at a festival called the Festival of Purim today. And one of the things that's done at that festival is that there is a reading of the book of Esther to understand why we're celebrating this festival. Now, unlike the Western culture, where we have a tendency to watch a show and not engage in it, the Feast of Purim always begins with the entire audience engaged in the retelling of the story of Esther. So many of us maybe don't know the story of Esther. So I need three volunteers. One volunteer is going to have a microphone, and every time we get to the heroes, all you're going to do is say, yay, and we're going to lead everybody in celebrating for our heroes. Second volunteer I need is to boo. So every time we hear about the evil henchman Haman, who's trying to kill off God's people, we'll all together go boo. We'll practice that in a moment. Thirdly, I need a volunteer who's going to help me with sound effects in the story. So there'll just be periodic sound effects I need. So uh, anyone feel like they're up to the to the being a, a, a yay, a boo, or a sound effect? And give me a raise of hands. All right, in the back, come on down. We got one. Need two more. All right, come on up. You can do the yay. Get you a mic. And I need one more to do sound effects for me. Okay, here you go. You can stand there. You're going to do yay. You're going to do... Uh, the boo, you look like you'd be good at booing that. Anyone else do sound effects? Sound effects? I knew the, I knew the, the person who would be most scared would be sound effects. Last call, sound effects? Are you going to do sound effects, Pam? All right. All right, thank you, Pam. All right, so let's practice real quick. So, well, I, I just want you to stand over there, so I'll, I'll have everybody over here. So I'll say, uh, all right, so in the story, I'll get to the place where I'll say either Mordecai or Esther. Those are our two heroes. And then you will lead us all in saying yay. So yay! Ready? All right, Mordecai. Yay! All right, let's help her out. We don't want her to be on her own. So, Esther. Yay! All right, and then, ready? And I'll say, and then the evil Haman. Boo. Good. All right. And then I might say something like, uh, he opened the gates to the city. Very good. Make sure you talk in the mic. No, let's try it again, right? Okay. That's right. Okay, that's what we're going to do. All right, so here comes the telling of the story. And make sure you participate with them. Here we go. Long ago, there lived a mighty king named King Xerxes, who was looking for a queen. He held a beauty contest to find the most worthy candidate. A trumpet sounded. Oh, doo-doo-doo. It was a modern-day trumpet. Uh, to signal the beginning of the contest. And the contestants paraded across the stage. And they had clown shoes on at the time, apparently, <laughs> which was great. In the kingdom lived a Jewish leader named Mordecai. Yay! Who had a beautiful niece named Esther. Yay! He encouraged her to enter the contest, but urged her to tell no one she was Jewish. Mordecai. Yay! Opened the mighty city gates. Which apparently needed oiled, and sat down at the castle entrance to keep a close eye on the niece. When Xerxes saw Esther. Yay! His heart beat wildly when he gazed upon her. The king fell in love and made her his queen. One day, Mordecai Yay! overheard two servants laughing deviously. <laughs> they weren't too devious. I mean, they were nice guys, but you know, they, they were only mean on the weekends. And plotting to attack the king. He found Esther Yay! and told her of his scheme. She warned the ruler that his life was in danger. King Xerxes had a henchman named Haman. Who was so powerful that everyone in the land bowed before him. Everyone, that is, except Mordecai. Yay! You see, as a devout Jewish man, he put no one above his God. Haman was furious that he would not worship him and tricked the king into signing a decree to kill the Israelites. With orders in hand, he set a date for their slaughter. 
when Mordecai Yay! heard the news, he was inconsolable. He cried and ripped his clothes. <laughs> rip, 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 slash, slash, rip. At the news that thousands would die at the hands of Haman. Boo. So he urged Esther Yay! to go to King Xerxes and convince him to reverse the law. They both knew it was dangerous to challenge the ruler. But Mordecai Yay! believed that she had been called by God for such a time as this. So when, oops, jump down. As part of her plan to make the request, Esther Yay! invited the king to a feast where they, along with Haman, Boo. gulped wine. And consume plates of delicious food. After dinner, the king's evil lieutenant left the palace, full of wine and full of himself. When he opened the gate, talking about a Scooby Doo episode. This is great. He his good mood quickly soured when he saw Mordecai. No, Mordecai. Yay! Yay! Standing in defiance, since he and the king had been invited to the feast again the next night with Esther. Yay! He chose to wait a day to kill Mordecai. Yay! But he did go home and he built a gallows for himself to hang Mordecai. The villain Yay! Laughed. Oh, that's true. <laughs> yeah, you're good. The villain laughed smugly. <laughs> he ate something last night. I didn't agree with him, actually, what happened. Then he turned into Jabba the Hutt, apparently. He pleased with his own devious plans. That night, King Xerxes couldn't sleep, so he rang a bell. <laughs> summoning his servants to bring him to the court journals. He read the story of how Mordecai Yay! had prevented his assassination years earlier. Realizing he had never been thanked for his loyalty, the king sent for Haman... And asked him how they should celebrate his kingdom's most heroic man. Naturally, the arrogant lieutenant thought Xerxes meant him and suggested the hero be dressed in a luxurious robe and honored with a royal parade, riding mightily astride the king's steed. More like a chicken. <laughs> when Haman. Ooh. Learned that he wasn't the one being honored, he was mortified, and his friends mocked him. His friends, oh, 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 oh mock, mock. <laughs> <laughs> furious, he resolved again to kill his enemy. The next night at dinner, King Xerxes asked his bride, "What is your petition, Esther?" Yay! Asked him to spare her life and those of her people who are under the edict to be slain on the day of Pur. The king asked, "Who wrote this appalling edict into law?" She said, "Your lieutenant, Haman." Xerxes granted her request, and the Jewish people were saved thanks to the bravery of Mordecai and Esther. Yay! Yay! The king then turned his anger upon Haman, Ooh. had him stripped of his power and riches. He screamed for mercy. Ah, mercy! Ah, mercy! <laughs> he hadn't hit puberty yet. He was really young. You have to understand. And in a final ironic twist, the gallows he built for Mordecai, yay, were used to hang evil Haman. Ooh. So Mordecai Yay! went from being a hated enemy of the state to one of its most influential citizens. And Esther Yay! became revered among her people for her wisdom, courage, and devotion to the justice and name of God. And to this day, when we celebrate the festival of Purim, we are recalling the heroism of Mordecai and Esther. Yay! Yay! Can we thank our volunteers? Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Well done. Take that. Thanks. Well, that is the story 
of the whole book of Esther. So if you uh, are out today and you want to brag and you say, I'm not really a Bible reader, you can say you've now read the entire book of Esther, all nine, ten chapters of it. You know, there are certain dates that are significant to all of us in America. Certain dates that represent giving, that represent family, that represent um, celebration. You know, maybe it's October 31st. October 31st is a time of giving. You dress up like something you're not, and you go to other people's house, and they give you free candy. It's a great day of giving, isn't it? A day of dress up and giving. Then there's another holiday, and sometime in February, it's a lot like Halloween. You dress up, and you hope for some candy by the end of the evening. Uh, it's called Valentine's Day. And that is another day of celebration. Then we have days like December 25th, Christmas. We have days like Thanksgiving. These dates were very significant in our culture of people gathering together to celebrate. Well, for the Jewish people, the festival of Purim, which happens, and we'll get to the date in just a second, is a very important date of giving. It's actually when people dress up. It's a little like Halloween in the sense that they dress up like their favorite heroes. Some dress up like Mordecai. Some dress up like Esther to remember how they were rescued years in the past. But it's also like Christmas. Because it's a time of gift giving. Because you were given the gift of life, because someone risks themselves for you, you give gifts to the poor, to the undeserving, and to those who need rescued yourself. So Purim is like hollow Christmas. It's a time of dress up and you receive, but it's also like Christmas, it's a time of giving. So that's what we're going to look at today. How is Purim like Halloween and how is it like Christmas? And as we explore this together, I hope what you're going to find is God has some gifts for you. You might say, I don't know if God gets involved in my life. I'm more of a deist. Well, just, just stay with me for a few moments. Because don't we all need wisdom? Don't we all need courage? God has some gifts like courage and wisdom and mercy that he wants us to open so that we can build on a relationship or begin a relationship with him. Let's look at the first gift. So like Halloween, you go to somebody's house and you open the door and they hand you something. The first thing you find in celebrating the Feast of Purim is that God wants you to understand how to receive his rescue. On the 14th or 15th of Adar, and if you look at a calendar, the Jewish calendar works off a lunar calendar. Let's go to the next slide. You'll see a calendar here. And sometime the 14th or 15th of Adar, February or March, is when this is celebrated. Now, it wasn't like somebody randomly said, hey, what's a good date? We don't have a holiday going on in February. This comes directly out of the end of the book of Esther. Next, next slide. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews. This is right after the edict's been declared that they're saved and no longer be destroyed. Who are in all the provinces of king, also pronounced Xerxes, the Persian name, to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th day of the month of Adar. So notice this is a celebration like Christmas. As the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies, they're no longer being killed, they've been rescued. As the month which had turned from sorrow, are we even going to live through this, to a time of joy. From mourning, oh my goodness, are we going to make it, to a holiday. That they should make them days of feasting and joy, of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. So do you see the celebration? So this is, let's not forget how we were rescued. Let's not forget what happened. So in one sense, Haman is like an ancient Persian version of Hitler. Because he came after all of the Jewish people and blamed them from all the ills of Persian society. Now speaking of Hitler, Hitler knew that Purim, the celebration of God's deliverance, was so key that he outlawed it. 
during his reign in Germany. When he came to Poland, he said they were not allowed to celebrate the Feast of Purim, that they would be rescued from onslaught. In fact, one day he was giving an impassioned speech in Munich, and as he is speaking and as he is talking about how the Jewish people are are cause of all the problems of the world, there's a Jewish man in in the first couple rows who's making faces at him while he's speaking. So imagine Hitler's up there giving us impassioned speech of anger and hatred and bigotry and this Jewish man sitting in the front row. <laughs> Hitler hadn't got his full reign to power yet. He's so angry. He says, what are you laughing at? He said, you are just one of the many anti-Semite leaders who've tried to kill us. The Pharaoh tried to kill us and every year at Passover we eat matzah to remember how we won. The evil Persian Commander Haman tried to kill us, and every year at Purim we give gifts to one another because he too failed. I wonder what we will celebrate when you fail, Hitler, Fuhrer Hitler. That didn't go over well for Hitler. So Hitler was even more enraged, like Haman was, to destroy the people, the Jewish people. So in 1941, he banned all of the people living in Poland from being able to celebrate Purim in 1941. In fact, he said, if the Russians defeat us Germans, the Jews will have a second Purim to celebrate. So Hitler was very aware that the idea that God could rescue people was on the minds of all the Jewish people as he was trying to conquer the known world. So how is God going to rescue his people? Well, as the story unfolds, the king, who was an absolute barbarian, he'd actually kicked his old wife out for not doing an inappropriate dance in front of a party. So this was a guy you didn't mess with. He killed people off. He was just enraged all the time. So he throws a contest, a beauty contest, to bring a new queen in. Esther wins the contest but doesn't tell everybody she's Jewish. Haman begins to create this edict to destroy God's people, and she is in an influential position in the kingdom to be able to influence her husband the king. But in Persian law, you don't go and talk to the king. The last queen who didn't do what the king asked or tried to ask for her own thing, you know, she was banished or killed. So here's the next part of the passage. Next part of the passage is going to go to the next slide. Mordecai, who got Haman mad and started this whole thing, goes to Esther and says, you've got to help us. You're in a position of leadership. You need to look at your leadership, your position in life as an opportunity for God to use you to impact others. He says this, If you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. I love this. He's got this confidence. Hey, if you don't get involved, God's going to bring deliverance one way or another. He's so confident that God's going to work, and yet he says you can be part of what God wants to do here. You can be part of a bigger scheme, a bigger plan, a bigger purpose to your life. But... You and your father's house will perish. Don't think by keeping silent you're not going to be on the receiving end of this. And I love this line. It's one of the most famous lines from Esther. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Have you ever looked at your life through that lens? Why are you in the particular community you're in? Why are you in the particular company you're in? Why were you born into this time, into this century, into the freest land in the entire history of the world? Just accumulate more for yourself? Or have you been born for such a time as this, that God wants to use you, your leverage, your platform, your influence, to do something far greater? That's the question. Would God want to use you to rescue someone in the world? 
Esther's thinking, wow, that, that'd be risky, that'd be dangerous. In 1936, one of the most famous people who was a, around during one of those such a time as this moments was Jesse Owens. Jesse Owens came up against Hitler, and you know, Hitler was spewing his Aryan bigotry at that time about why the Aryan race was better and blacks and Jews and, and gays and others should be vanquished or killed. And Jesse Owens comes to the forefront. And most of you know, he went to Ohio State. He was known as the Buckeye Bullet. What you may not know is that he was the first captain of the track team, and yet because of the color of his skin, he wasn't allowed in the dormitory. So think about it. he was coming up against a whole culture of racism at that time. And did you know his name wasn't Jesse Owens? His name was J.C. Owens, which stood for James Cleveland. But he was so shy as a kid at age nine that when he said, his teacher said, uh, what's your name, son? He said, J.C. Teacher thought he said Jesse. And so he became Jesse Owens from that point on. So Jesse Owens heads to Berlin, 1936 Olympics, to take on the entire Aryan philosophy to prove that all men are created equal. Well, as he shows up, he's wearing a particular pair of shoes that day to run. And those shoes actually belong to a brand new company, a brand new designer who gave him the shoes. And the man's name was Addy Dassler. By the end of this run, those shoes will be made famous and will turn into a brand known as Adidas. Adidas began right here in Berlin on J.C. Owen's feet. And there in Berlin, standing up against all the evils of bigotry, all the evils of the Holocaust, all the evils of this Aryan philosophy that says some people are better than others, J.C. Owens won four golds in the 100 meters, the long jump, the 200 meters, and the 400 meter relay. He saw his life for such a time as this that God used him to impact generations of boys, girls, society that came against these lies. How about you and I? What if we began to see our life through the lens of for such a time as this? What does God want to do with me, to use me? Maybe it's a business. Maybe it's standing against evil. Maybe it's giving voice to somebody who doesn't have a voice. Maybe it's looking for the orphans or the hurting or, or those caught in sex trade. There's so many hurting people in the world that rather than just building our own castle, what if we spread a new kind of kingdom? See, the first gift we get from Purim is saying, God, how, do you, how have you rescued me? We'll get into that in a moment. And if God has rescued me, then how can I not look around for others to rescue? The second gift is the gift of mercy. One of the themes of the book of Esther is mercy. So first let me define mercy. Mercy means not getting what you deserve. Now, most people never experience mercy because they never want to admit what they do deserve. You can't get what you don't deserve until you admit what you do deserve. And most of us say, well, I'm basically a good person, so I don't deserve any kind of consequences or any kind of fairness because I'm a good person. You're never going to feel mercy that way. Mercy comes when you say, well, I'm really a bit of a scoundrel. Well, the way I talked yesterday to my wife, the way I was so impatient with my son, if I got what I deserved just yesterday, I'd be in trouble. And God says, instead of giving you what you deserve, I'm going to give you mercy. I'm not giving you punishment. I'm not going to give you what you deserve. Now, why is this the theme of the book? Mordecai, Esther, and all the people living in Persia, God had told them years earlier, get out of Persia, it's dangerous. So many of them had gone with Ezra back to the area, or gone with Nehemiah back to the homeland in Jerusalem. But everyone in Persia were those who were already disobeying God. But God said, everybody get out. Nah, that sounds like a lot of work. That sounds like a long travel. That sounds like a lot of unknown. 
So everyone living in Persia, all the Jewish people, were already disobeying God. So God could have said, hey, I warned you. I warned you. You reap what you sow. But the message of Esther is how God works with people who betray him. God works with people who disobey him. God is faithful when we are faithless. God can be counted on when we can't be counted on. And so God begins to orchestrate the circumstances. Another interesting thing about Esther, God's name is never mentioned. And yet as you watch the story unfold like a great piece of narrative, you can see his fingerprints all over the place. He puts Esther in such a place. He puts Mordecai in such a place. At just the right time when needed most, she is there and is able to be a voice of mercy. So the theme of the book is a gift of mercy. And what God would want us to know is that we can experience his mercy as well. But in order to experience God's mercy, you've got to start by saying, you know, I really do some dumb things. I really don't live up to my own standards, let alone God's. A few months ago, we had a guy who came to our hearth room, and he said, man, I am growing so much spiritually. For the first time in my life, I've been at church for 20-plus years. I didn't really know what the Bible is about or God's about. But, man, I am experiencing a purpose, a significance, an understanding of God I've never had before. To which one of the, the folks at our hearth room said, well, can you tell me your secret? What's the one thing you've learned in the last 18 months that's impacted you? He said, that's easy. Well, what is it? I am not God. To which his wife was standing next to him. She went, she said, well, t- well, tell me about that. And she says, it's been a rough ride. But what's happening in his life is so powerful. Our marriage is better. Our relationships are stronger. The way we're enjoying life is so changed. But he had to first admit that he was living life like he was God. And once he admitted that, he's like, oh, my goodness, I'm claiming to be God. I hope God doesn't give me what I deserve for trying to take his place. I need God's mercy. But many of us don't experience God's mercy because we don't even see what we're doing. One of the great frustrations of being a parent to a special needs autistic son is my son engages in what's called smearing at this stage. We're trying to teach him potty training, which is very frustrating because instead he pulls his pants down and grabs poo and smears it everywhere and and, and is delighted in it. Um, And you've never seen a boy more happy than my son when he's spreading poo on himself and on our couch and on our floor to the point at which we're cleaning it up three or four times a day. Very frustrating. So here he is gleefully enjoying his poo, and my wife's like, when is he going to get potty trained? And we're buying a new couch. I know, honey, if we could ever get a potty trained, we'll buy a new couch. And my son can't experience mercy because he doesn't even know what he's doing is wrong. What's wrong with this? This is a good time. Join me in it, right? (laughs) Woohoo! I mean, this guy's smile on his face. We're living the dream. That's exactly what happens with a complaining attitude. It's exactly what happens with self-centeredness, believing you're God, a sense of entitlement or victimhood or martyrdom. You're playing in your own poo and you don't even know it. It's just what you become. And God says, will you at least admit a part of this is broken, a part of this smells badly. And I will mercifully work with you to, to train you to find something better or deeper than what you have. So that's God's mercy. So it's Halloween. We experience his rescue. We experience his mercy, but also courage. The story of Esther is a story of courage. It's an example of how you and I need to be courageous in our life. Because Esther knows that if she goes to the king, she's going to be killed. Because she knows what happened to the last queen. But she says, all right, God, I need your courage. You are courageous enough to come and rescue us out of Egypt. I want to be courageous enough to do to others as you have done to me. 
So she says this. She, she sends a message back to Mordecai. Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushim. Fast for me, which means to go without food to seek God's help. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will also fast. So I will go to the king, which is against the law. I'm probably going to die. And look at this line. But if I perish, I perish. If it causes me discomfort, I'm going to put other people's needs ahead of my own. If it causes me to die, but I'm able to be used to possibly rescue people, I can't not step out. I can't not be courageous. I can't go the extra mile. I think, man, how often do I need courage? I mean, how often is that attitude on my heart? You know, it's the right thing to do. If I perish, I perish. But I want to open that gift. I need that gift in my life. I need the gift of God's courage. But besides these three gifts, Purim is a reminder of how Esther got dressed up. Because she's this little Jewish peasant girl. And she gets dressed up in royalty to look like a king, to to look like a queen. She marries the king. And when the time is right, she reveals that she's dressed up. She's really Jewish. And it's at that time when she reveals herself that incredible courage. God uses her revealing of who she is to rescue her people. Which is why even to this day at the Feast of Purim, boys and girls dress up not like Spider-Man or Superman. They dress up like their favorite heroes, Mordecai and Esther. To remember that they dressed up in courage. They dressed up in fearlessness to rescue other people. But ultimately, the Feast of Purim points to a future Esther. To Jesus himself, that God says, I would come to earth and I would dress up in humanity. I was God, but I dressed up to look like I was a human. And when the time was right, I revealed myself as God. And I courageously took on the cross. I courageously allowed myself to be betrayed. I courageously allowed myself to be nails to be pounded into my hands and to my feet. I allowed a crown of thorns to be pushed on my head. And more than that, I allowed God to turn his back on me so he'd never have to turn his back on anyone who would trust in me. Jesus is the ultimate Esther. The book of Esther points to him as the one who ultimately dressed up, but he took off his royalty to become a peasant and then revealed his royalty to rescue us or to give us mercy. And that is why the Feast of Purim isn't just like Halloween. It's also like Christmas. It points to Christ. Christ is the ultimate expression of Purim. More than that, Jesus, as a Jewish rabbi, attended Purim many times. In the book of John, we find Jesus attending Purim. Here's what it says in chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. I won't go into all the details, just trust me. If you look at the timing, what happened before and after that, the only feast that fits into this time of Jesus' life was the Feast of Purim. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And now there in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, was a pool. The Sheep Gate was the place the sheep would come in where they would be sacrificed to the temple. Another interesting tidbit is Jesus, instead of coming in the front gate for the temple when he came to uh, Jerusalem, he came in through the Sheep Gate, the same place as those who would be sacrificed. And when he gets there, he comes to a place in Hebrew called Bethsaida. Beth meaning house, Seda meaning charity. Literally, he comes to the house of mercy. So there's a book called Esther about mercy. On the date of celebrating the book of Esther, Purim, Jesus comes to the place called mercy on the date of the celebration of mercy. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. A certain man was there who had been sick or had infirmity for 38 years. Now, there's lots of people he could have healed. 
He specifically picks this man of 38 years. Why? Put that mystery up there. We'll keep going. Jesus saw him laying there, and he knew that he already had been in that condition a long time. So he said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered and said, well, sir, I have no man to put me into the water when it's stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well and took up his bed and walked. There's only one other time in the whole Bible that the number 38 is used. And whenever you see numbers in the Bible, if you're thinking Jewish, if you're thinking Eastern, numbers always have an inner meaning you need to look to. So if you look at Deuteronomy here at the bottom, it's the one other time the number 38 is used in the Bible. When Moses is describing the history of the Israeli people, the Jewish people, God's people, he said, you remember, God told us to go into the promised land. We got to the promised land and we said, we can't trust you. I don't think so. So God made us wander for 38 years. So let me put all that together. Jesus shows up at the Festival of Mercy to a place called Mercy to a person who is engaging in superstition, who has been away from God for 38 years, and he decides to work with and heal that guy to remind us that what if we've been away from God, when we have been far from him, when we have not obeyed him, when we have not done the right thing, when we, like his history of people, have wandered away from him for 38 years, he wants to work with us. So I got a chance to go to this pool. Let me show you some pictures. When I was in Israel, we went to this very place. And if you look on the right-hand side, you'll see this pool is gigantic. Look how deep that thing is. So we stood up here on this uh, railing, and we looked down into this pool. And the pool has two sides. This pool would be filled up with water because when the lambs came through and they were sacrificed, they needed lots of water to wash away you know, all the sacrifice that was going on. But if you zoom the camera back, you get to the picture on the left. So you'll see the people way up there in the far left is where the balcony is. But on this side are these little pools, like hot tubs. Think of them as miniature hot tub areas where people would lay. Now, this was the temple dedicated to God of the Bible. But Herod, who built it, decided to put a different temple inside of the temple. So this section, if you look at this one on the left, you'll see the, uh, the tall spot on the right-hand side with the doorway up at the top. That is actually a temple within the temple to a Greek god, Asclepius. Asclepius. So imagine this. They build a temple to God, and then they say, well, in case he's not really the real god, we'll build another temple inside his temple to a different god, the god of healing and the god of medicine. So now all the people are gathered around, not the temple of God. They're gathered around the temple of Asclepius saying, we're hoping that every once in a while there'll be a bubbling that come up. Probably a spring that was under the water. But every time a bubble came up, they'd say, it's an angel. And they sort of, all the sick people trying to roll over each other and get into the water first, hoping they'd be healed. So you got superstition. you got rebellion against God. you got them trusting a different God while they're in his God. I mean, it'd be like... What would it be like? It would be like on your honeymoon and you set up a cot for your mistress right in the middle of your, of your hotel room for you and your wife. You'd be like, well, that's offensive, right? This is how offensive this is. And yet this is where God, Jesus, cho- chooses to go. This is the person he chooses to work with. He's saying no one's beyond reach. No one's beyond rescue. No matter what you're doing or have done, I want to help you. And it's the Feast of Purim. It's God giving mercy just as the Jewish people receive mercy. It's God initiating, just as Esther initiated. It's him being courageous, just as she was courageous. And what do you do at Purim? You receive that which is given to you, 
but you also give that which you've received. He's giving to the poor, to the hurting and the needy, a gift right here in front of us. It's Christmas. You know what you need most, most buddy? You don't need me to help you in the water. You need to know how to walk. Rise. Stand up and walk. And here you see Jesus acting as the ultimate gift giver of Purim as he gives to the poor, the sick, the undeserving, the 38-year-old. The 38 years of hurt and pain and infirmity. The gift of Christmas. One of the reasons we are so passionate as a church about caring for the poor, the reason as of this year I think we've fed over one million kids in Ganda, one million kids in, in the Philippines to feed my starving children, the reason we send 12 mission trips a year to help out orphans in India, in Ecuador, um, in Belize, in Cancun, actually it's Haiti, not Ecuador, the reason that we send 40 teams a year down to City Gospel Mission is because of Purim. Because God saw us when we were hurting and needed Him, we're going to be generous to others. Because God is so patient with us, we want to be patient with the others. The reason many of you have given up your vacation time to go and spend a week helping those who need medical care or need pharmaceutical help, the reason some of you have gone to build homes in different areas is because you want to create the spirit of Purim. I want to take Christmas with me. But here's the difference between just doing good works and what the Bible describes. Good works are always good. But what makes the Bible different is you do it because he did it to you first. So you start with, what did God do to me? He rescued me. Now, if you don't think you need rescued, you can still do good works and join us. But what happens is a switch will occur. When you'll stop doing good works so that you can prove you're a good person, you'll start doing good works because you're so thankful you weren't a good person and he still wanted to work with you. You want to be patient with your spouse supernatural patience with your spouse, not because your spouse deserves it, because they don't, but because God was so patient with you. You want to love your spouse unconditionally, not because they're that lovable when they're grumpy and mad, but because God loved you when you were grumpy and irritable. You begin to respect those who are not really respectable because God respected you and honored you when you weren't very respectable and honorable. This is mercy. This is Purim. This is what happens. I got this letter sent to me after feeding my starving children I thought was powerful about how this works out at our church. Hi, Amy. It wasn't written to me, by the way. Uh, Amy, uh, our director of student ministry, also works with our mission stuff. And this year we had our Feed My Starving Children over at Indian Hill High School. I was sharing a story with Sarah this morning, and she wanted me to share with you as well. I invite a friend from work along with her family to pack meals for Feed My Starving Children. My friend Amy has a very interesting story. She and her husband live in Uganda along with their six children five of whom were adopted in Uganda. When we were packing meals last weekend, they realized the food was going to Uganda, and they were ecstatic. Afterwards, when the woman in charge was sharing the picture of little baby Pierre and how the meals had saved him, Amy's oldest son, Graham, turned to me and said, That's the village I'm from! My friend and her family are returning to Uganda at the end of the summer, and they have already contacted their friends to see how they can help there. They were all so excited to help out their fellow Ugandans. And packing meals was so rewarding for them in many ways. For me, it was such an amazing thing to see right in front of me how we can do all make a difference and that we can all change the world. Thanks for all you do. This year, many of you on spring break went down to Cancun. You had a great time at Cancun with you and your family. But several families here at our church took one of the days in Cancun and they left the nice blue waters 
and just took a day as a family, and they went to the orphanage that we work with there in Cancun, and they worked with orphans for a day, some, some for two. And just said how rich that experience was, not just to enjoy the luxuries, which is great to vacate, but also to work together to help and to give to those who can never give back. That's what we're about, and we do it because we believe God has done that to us. You see, Purim is hollow Christmas. It's a time to give and receive. We receive what is given, and then having been given more than we could even imagine, we then give from what we've received. So here's my encouragement to you. Here's what I think the response to Purim is. To engage in a BHAG. To engage in a BHAG. Big, hairy, audacious giving. To make yourself a goal. To say, I'm not just going to do a little. I want to be incredibly generous with my time, my treasure, my talents. I want to engage in BHAG because he engaged in BHAG. If you're still exploring that, we'll explore it some more. But as you begin to see the generosity of God, you say, I've got to set up, not just to get, become a little bit more generous. I'm talking about something that will capture your heart. Something you get up during the day and say, boy, I, I'm working hard so that I can do this in the world. So I can change that person's life or that group of people's life. That's what I'm about. And that may start relationally. You say, I need to experience, I need some more patience in my marriage. I need to receive some more. Because before I can have some big, hairy, audacious giving of patience to my spouse... Because i got the big hairy down. Uh, there's some big hairy problems going on, but I don't have the want to be generous part. But I want you to meditate on how generous and patient God's been to you. And then say, my big, hairy, audacious goal is I'm going to be more patient in my marriage and more, more loving with my son who's not living the way he should right now or, or more merciful to my, my daughter who said those mean things to me than I could ever imagine. God, give me, engage in a hag of patience, a hag of grace, a hag of love. For some of us, we're living in America. Like Esther, we have such a time as this. We are on a platform of influence. And maybe this is the time you say, my BHAG is we're going to start going down to City Gospel once a month as a family. Maybe it's, I want to sign up for one of those mission trips. I've heard about Belize all these years. I'm going to take one a week of my vacation as a doctor, and I'm going to go engage in healthcare in such a way. Maybe I'm a pharmacist. Maybe I'm a home builder. Maybe for you, your BHAG is saying, tell me about those orphans. I heard in Belize it takes only $150 and you can keep a girl out of prostitution because it pays for a full year of school. $150? I'll take five. Let me support 20. All the money we accumulate, is it just to upgrade ourselves or is it to change the world? Big, hairy, audacious giving says, I've got something I get up and I work for to make a difference in the world. When I was 21, I got married on my 21st birthday, which comes up... uh, this week, May 21st, so we're going to celebrate 20 years of marriage, Beth and I. She's not here, so don't cheer, because she needs it more than me. Um, but I remember when I was 21, I think my first job, I made $21,000, and I sat down, and I wrote out a BHAG. And I said, God, someday I want to give away a million dollars. Don't know how I was going to do it. Don't know if I'll ever do it. But that is a BHAG. I actually just shared that with Beth about two years ago. I said, did I ever tell you about this thing? She's like, No. I said, one of the reasons I increase my percentage of giving every year, one of the, the reasons I try and be progressively more generous every year, one of the years I try and give away um, to God's priorities is because I just believe, God, if you, would, if you would help me just incrementally over time, it might be 90 before I get there, but my BHAG is to give away a million dollars to God's work in the world. Do you have a BHAG, something that drives you and gets you up? If you do, you can be a hero to someone else. Like Mordecai was and Esther was, don't you want to be a hero to someone else? God has been a hero to us. 
And he wants you to be a hero to others. I'm going to invite the band to come up because ultimately the Feast of, of Purim is a celebration of generosity. It's a celebration of caring for those who are forgotten. And there's no story I think that's better than this than that of Schindler from Schindler's List. He was a businessman. He had lots of influence. He had lots of opportunity. And yet he turned his business upside down to not just build his own castle, but to expand a new kingdom. And he was a hero. A hero to thousands of families. Generations go back and thank him as being the Esther and the Mordecai of his generation. Here's a letter written to him about him in that celebration. Brothers, we the undersigned Jews from Krakow, inmates of Plezow, concentration camp, have since 1942 worked in Director Schindler's business. Since Schindler took over management of the business, it was his exclusive goal to protect us from resettlement, which would have meant our ultimate liquidation. During the entire period, Director Schindler did everything possible to save the lives of the greatest possible number of Jews. In spite of the tremendous difficulties during a time when receiving Jewish workers caused great difficulties with authorities, Director Schindler took care of our sustenance. As a result, during the whole period, there was not a single case of unnatural death. All in all, he employed more than 1,000 Jewish people in Krakow. He gave considerable sums out of his own private funds to enable their recovery. He organized medical care, established a special hospital room for those people who were bedridden. It was only because of his personal care that it was possible to save 80 of those people from inevitable death. This guy was a hero by using his business life to change the world. There's no lack of hurting people in the world. It's like, wow, I wish I lived back then. I could have done something. There's plenty of hurting people now. Be a hero to someone because God's been a hero to you. This song is a celebration song because Purim is a time of celebration of what God has done. It's a time of Halloween and that of Christmas. The kids can't come in and they dress up their favorite heroes. Imagine one day that someone would write a letter like this to you. Imagine someday that someone would dress up like you. That's sort of scary. Because of how you impacted their world. Let's listen to this next song together and get into the Feast of Purim, a time of giving, a kind of dressing up like our heroes. Well, again, thank you for celebrating with us today. You know, if you want to be involved in giving at Horizon, we would invite you to do that. If that is, uh, you know, serving somewhere in the church, you can fill out a connect card if that's giving financially, but never, never, never give out of guilt. Like if you ever want you keep your money, if it's a guilt. But if you believe in what we're doing, and want to be part of it, but we would encourage you to join us and sing in the song what God's done for us. In fact, tonight, lots of people are going to go, and going to go out loud and sing a song what God's done in their life in our baptism service. You'll get to see me turn into a giant goose pimple tonight as we get into the cold water outside. So you don't want to miss that. Six o'clock. There's also people going to be baptized. So six o'clock tonight, we invite you to come back for that celebration. We'll see you all next week for Jewish Jesus Part Five. Thanks again.